this session, we discuss intergenerational and community resilience, the application of transitional family theory and therapy, and the centrality of hope and relational connections. Dr. Judith Landau is a child, adolescent, family, and community neuropsychiatrist and former professor of psychiatry and family medicine. She has specialized in trauma, behavioral health, and co-occurring disorders for 50 plus years, exploring how to facilitate resilience in individuals, families, and communities. She's a developer of evidence-based best practice transitional family therapy, the first integrated family systems model, Arise Comprehensive Care with Invitational Intervention, Link Community Resilience, and The Life Model. She has published widely and taught in over 90 countries. As a senior Fulbright Scholar and recipient of numerous awards, Dr. Landa has served as a consultant to NIDA, NIAAA, the WHO, CDC, and several international governments. Thank you so much for joining us today, Judith. Really appreciate having you. What's been catching your attention in your work these days? It's a pleasure being with you, Navid, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, My pleasure. You know, I, I, I'm still passionate about my original objective, which is intergenerational resilience and how we access resilience in individuals, families, and communities, honoring all of them, regardless of regardless of difference. Um, and I think the you know the way that that I've applied things across time is always with that theme in mind and um, how we change the prevailing culture from pathology to resilience. Mm. Because unless we're able to do that, people get obsessed about difference, and that's where we find ourselves in this awful current situation. Mm. Um, and I think until everyone really understands that we're all inherently similar with the same goals, dreams, hopes, and humanity, we're, we're going to keep destroying one another. So um, a large part of that is, you know, while with changing culture is also changing all the aspects of culture, the things that people need to recognize as different but still maintain our humanity. Um, and I think in our in in the health fields, we've become so focused on pathology in contrast with um, how I grew up as a traditional African healer, where we look for resilience and strength and health. And there have been phases during my rather long career where people have looked for health and healing. Mm. And then the insurance company or the prevailing um, economic situation drives everybody back into silos, whether they're individual rather than looking at family systems and community, or whether they're the silos of different specialties. So um, I think changing changing culture is at the heart of what we have to do 
taking the blame, shame, and guilt out of things by providing a wide enough lens to understand how they developed. Because once one goes far enough back or far enough out into the ecosystem, everything makes sense, all the reactions and the feelings and um, the way in which people behave. Mm. So that's really been my lifelong task, and I've taken it into a lot of different areas. And right now, um, there's a major trend towards taking academic models that have become evidence-based and are clearly effective and translating them into popular literature and making them accessible to people, even down to self-help books. And um, I realized as I started writing, I'm writing two books at the moment, and as I started writing the book proposal, I realized that that's what I did originally with um, my book, AIDS, Health and Mental Health, was trying to create a bridge at the beginning of the AIDS pandemic that would allow the public to look more systemically at the syndemic Hmm. and not get locked into only the life and death stories. Um, And as a result of doing that preventive work, um, I started looking at transitional family systems, which was the model that I developed starting way back in the 60s and then honed with my team in Rochester. Um, And really looking in detail at how we look at not just the here and now or the intergenerational or the ecosystemic, but how we look at a really broad map to decide where to work and bring in whatever systems are needed for assessment and then focusing the work. Um, The other trend that's happening at the moment is that we are, because of the situation in the world with the growing regional and global concerns from war and genocide to pandemics, syndemics, COVID-19, opiates, traffic, human trafficking has reached an all-time high global climate change, terrorism, random acts of violence, and back to war. Um, We're seeing, on an average, when there's a major event like an earthquake or a war, we see an average of about 30% increase in health and mental health-related illness. Mm. Right now, because there's so much going on, we're seeing somewhere between 30 and 60%. Um, you know, adolescent and young adult suicides at an all-time high. Um, And we don't have sufficient practitioners to be able to deal, licensed providers to be able to deal with it. Um, And I've seen this in many countries over my career. I think I've taught in almost 100 countries. And when there is a major event, the only way to deal with the um, impending or actual outcome of, you know, mass increase in physical, emotional, behavioral illness is um, is to train members of that community to be able to deal with the, um, with the front end 
mm. with the supervision of our few licensed clinicians. And I think we're now at a point where we have to start thinking that way worldwide. Because mm. um, it's not just in the disadvantaged populations or the countries under siege anymore. You know, we're seeing it right here. So um, my team in Rochester and I started back in the 80s as we honed the model I brought with me, um, started looking at comparing if we train people in protocols with manuals, um, how do the people off the street, kids out of um, volunteer America, compare with psychiatrists, psychologists, internists, um, addiction counselors, and so on. And um, so all of the offshoots of transitional family therapy, all of the protocols have been, you know, were first tested, evidence-based, and comparing um, people trained in the model using the manual um, with, with degrees, without degrees, different ages, genders, cultures, and as long as they follow the protocol, they were getting the same results. And I think that's going to be something that we all need to be doing because we can't keep up with the need. And um, when, when practitioners can't keep up with the need, they get smaller and smaller, not bigger and bigger. Instead of expanding their lenses, they shrink them. And, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s, we were able to get insurance companies to pay for family therapy. The family could be the patient. And now we're back. Um, I've done a couple of two or three adolescent keynotes on adolescents this year. And when I've asked the participants, hundreds of people working with adolescents, um, how many of you either see a family member while you're treating adolescent or have somebody on your group see an adolescent. And it's somewhere between 5% and 10%. Mm. So again, because of the volume of work people are, are managing, they've stopped collaborating and they're back in their silos. Yeah. So we've got to be able to change that. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting to hear about a time that unfortunately I'm unfamiliar with where mm -hmm. insurance would support the family work in the way they do. Cause so many of our. Because 20 years to get then of it, of battling insurance companies, of doing studies, of proving that if you do a six family sessions, you save on, on expense. Yeah. Gosh. Well, I guess there's a way that I'm like really appreciative of the richness of the history that you hold and have been a part of, uh, Judith, um, and interest, particularly interested in the way that you're describing your origins as a healer and the ways that your focus was on some of the ways that we all hold resilience and in our similarities, there's just a lot of connection. And how is within kind of the grim statistics that you shared around the kind of the on just a movement towards ongoing movement towards genocide and war and random acts of violence, like you were saying. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll throw, not to like equate them, but to throw in also the movement of big institutions like insurance, 
taking away resources from communities, centering more individualized models. With all that said, of course, I want you to like feel like you can talk about whatever you want, but my attention really was drawn to some of the, this last piece you were talking about, you were talking about this training model and this manual that you were able to like implement across mm-hmm. communities that mm-hmm. had success, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if yeah. you could share a story of that training model, kind of like grounded a little right, bit. Sure. So, so there's several. Um, trans- I came to the idea of working with transition because um, growing up in Africa during, um, you know, during a war. Do you mind if I ask what part of Africa? Um, South Africa. South Africa. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my family was part of the the battle against against apartheid, and I'm actually in the apartheid museum. Oh for my own work um but the um you know growing up seeing my first murder when i was about five mm. and um being trained as a or recognized as an indigenous healer from tiny i always thought that's what i would be so it's it's very much an integral part of who i am is looking from the lens of a healer more than the lens of a of a physician mm-hmm. and it's it's both and they're both very much who i am i think next year will be my 60th celebration of graduation from medical school oh congratulations <laughs> thanks yeah, it doesn't seem possible but yes that's amazing um yeah, i was lucky i started at 16 so i had a jump start um but the um so growing up in a situation where um, we would have the secret police breaking down the door in the middle of the night, um, lots of murders around me, people disappearing to try and reach safety. A lot of my friends and, you know, the family friends, parents would disappear, either being put in jail or try- smuggling themselves out to another country. And what I learned was... I was the oldest of 32 non-blood siblings. And what I learned was that regardless of what was happening around us, and and there was a lot of horror, there was also the excitement of secret meetings in the basement of my father's clinic. And, you know, the plotting and planning for restorative justice. Mm. And... um, what struck me as I grew was that at no point did any of us kids feel alone, even when our parents were missing or under a banning order, which meant they were not allowed to socialize. We always knew that there would be somebody else in that group. Mm. And it was a completely mixed cultural group, and there were no boundaries. And it was at a time where the beginning of apartheid, miscegenation hadn't yet become against the law. So there were a lot of intermarriages and mixed kids, and it was all just part of our normal social structure. So I've always seen strength in Indigenous healing and in community. So that's really, and then looking for a model that would cross cultures and languages. There are 11 official languages in South Africa, and I couldn't learn all of them. I tried, (laughs) but, um, and, and, really learning about the different spiritual belief systems and so on, I realized I needed to find a way of working across all of them, which is where transitional family theory came from. 
was because all of all all living things are in transition. Mm. So choosing that as a universal theme allowed us to work across different groups and different countries and different situations. So once once we had tested transitional family therapy and um, it was evidence-based, it was then clear that there were so many parts of the world in trouble with, including in the United States, um, where there were insufficient therapists, medical professionals, teachers to be able to deal with the need. Um, We do a lot of work in Appalachia. They don't have a fire department. They don't have police. It's community members who do it all. Interesting. So, um, so we started to to adapt transitional family therapy to specific needs, like getting people with with mental health disorders and addiction into treatment and keeping them there, um, like dealing with domestic violence, working in communities where there are no services to help train members of the family as links between the professional and the extended family and community to bring about change in that community. And so all of the protocols that you read off my my little bio are evidence-based, and they were all tested with community members, kids out of high school, against well-trained professionals. And so just to make sure I'm capturing this, uh, Judith, that the transitional family model is something that's, there's some sort of need identified in a community, and then this model is brought That's link community resilience. So in need in a community is where we apply link community resilience, is which is working with that entire community to select links who then are trained so we train people as link community facilitators who then find links and work with them and train them to work with their families. I see. And this all kind of so was born out of your history in political turmoil and growing up in like yes, activism yes, and resistance yes, to a really yeah, unjust system. Yeah. And so yeah. then you took this model that necessarily, right. as it was, it was developed in South Africa, responded mm-hmm. to the cultural and linguistic diversity there. Yes. And you've implemented it elsewhere and found success and developed research and evidence off of this yeah. model. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the early link community resilience tests was um, Natal province's 5 million people. And the head of health for the province was, was, um, spoke to me about not being able to engage members of the community who were not coming in for mental health issues, for physical health issues. They weren't getting immunized. Um, it was a high infant mortality rate. Yeah. So we co-designed Link Community Resilience to reach out into that entire community. So that was the first study. I'm interested in this, and I'll just give you context as to yeah. why. Like, as you probably know, I work with refugee communities out here in San Diego. Yeah. And all early research was with refugees. Yeah, and it's just like a really beautiful context to be in, and a lot of how you're describing families and resilience. I, I love it. Also, the interest in intergenerational resilience versus the mm-hmm. focus on trauma. With that said, Rightfully, the communities, some of the folks I've worked with in this community, the refugee community, are very suspicious of institutions. Of course, because they come from extended families. 
that don't call for help unless something desperate's happening. And as soon as they've got help, they close ranks again, which is exactly why I developed the concept of what I originally called link therapy, where the person who came to us for help became the link to the family. So, for example, there was a refugee family of Laotians um, where um, three, a, a brother of 12 had swum the Mekong with three little sisters and brought them into and had got them through Thailand to the American hospital there and ultimately to um, Rochester. And um, he had been in hospital four or five times with extremely serious suicide attempts. Um, He tried to hang himself, he'd stabbed himself in the stomach and so on. And it turned out that he was feeling incompetent to take care of his sisters. And um, he had a fiance who had left him. And it seemed like an extreme response, you know, just because his fiance left. And what it turned out was when he'd come to the States, the fiance and he had immigrated around the same time. And her father had been a nurse in the um, Thai American hospital. And he and his wife had, had a, really semi adopted this whole family. So he wasn't just losing, he wasn't just losing his fiance, he was losing the support for his sisters. Wow. And the way we found out was by appointing one of his sisters and one of the fiance's sisters as the two links. All the work was done with those two girls, going back to their families, bringing the story, and then doing the intervention. So let me know. And, oh, I'm sorry. Please. And what happened was the father, when he realized what was going on, said, you two don't have to be married for me to continue taking care of this family. You've become family. And he stopped attempting suicide. Wow, that's a powerful story. And and correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, that the therapist in this context is less of a therapist and more of like a facilitator of connection. Exactly. And kind of- a coach teasing from the facilitating and tweaking the system from the outside, suggesting what they might look at not needing to know their secrets, but being able to facilitate their using and exposing their secrets within the safety of their own extended family without having to feel they're giving up power, letting in outsiders. This really upends a lot of the traditional capitalist notions of therapy as a service delivery model that requires outcomes. And rather, and it's evidence-based. It's been tested in at least fifty different countries. Yeah, this is very radical that you're describing. I'm really appreciating. So the the therapist may not even know the secrets. They're just supporting the links, the family links, to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the things that happened was the father of the fiance shared his horror stories with all the girls. I never heard them. That's really interesting. I love this because the biggest fear too that refugees have when they're coming in is I'm going to tell the most secret thing I have to a therapist and then they're going to call CPS or they're going to call the police. Yeah, I don't need to know. Hmm. People who need to know are the ones who can do something about it. 
And so this is evidence-based. Yes. And have it's, you found and success? And there are a lot of publications on our website. Um, you go to linkinghumansystems.com publications. They're all in the community section. And is it link with a C or with a K? Um, no, this is actually linkinghumansystems.com. The way it's spelled. Cool. Um, the model is L-I-N-C. I see. Okay. Link Community Resilience. Um, and it was used in Kosovo during the war when an, I went in with an AFTA team and then continued to consult to the Director of Strategic Development. And we we basically designed a whole um, a whole um, regional regional health and mental health delivery system because they only had 37 professionals of any kind left at the end of the war. And we were there during the war. And he then became the Minister of Health, Feridagani. He's he's published widely. He and I published quite a bit together. And um, we actually have a couple of after publications that we did together. And, um, and, and you know, amazing stuff. We we basically developed regionalized healthcare delivery and the the decentralization, the people manning what we called health houses are members of the community with no training. But they're the front end, and only if they can't help do they send somebody up the chain to the clinic where there's a social worker or a nurse. And um, the they're not allowed to go, patients are not allowed to present at any level of care without a family member or friend. So um, one of the studies was looking at, they had a very high rate of schizophrenia. And um, at the end of a year, we had a 98% compliance rate of people with schizophrenia taking their meds and coming to treatment. Wow. And the shift being a more community-based, family-centered approach where the clinician is really brought in and, in the most more extreme cases. Well, and this, yeah. And only if the clinic can't help do they go up to the hospital. Wow. Well, I have to ask, I mean, um, not to be annoying, but what have been some of the challenges? You're never annoying. <laughs> I, I have to wonder, because this is so, like, I'm just, like, inspired. Uh, what have been some of the challenges of this model? Not not just the challenge mm-hmm. inherent to the model itself, but, like, maybe some of the more political... Uh, the political uh, stuff has been extremely hard. Um, way back in the early 90s, I was um, a consultant to CDC and P, the preventive arm, and we were at a point of... Um, of doing a congressional initiative for DC and four surrounding states to bring in link community resilience because of the rate of um, addiction and suicide. Mm. And we were at the point it was all designed and ready to go. <clears throat> Worked with an amazing man who then left CDC and went to, went to MIT. But as we were about to launch, um, the director of the CDC retired and the new guy came in and didn't understand the difference between process and content. And we tried to explain to him that if you have a process that's evidence-based, it can translate across cultures and communities. If you take content, you've got to translate language, you've got to make it culturally appropriate. It's, it, it doesn't happen. Right. No, 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 we've got to go back to the public health departments and ask what makes content transferable. 
And I said, you can't make content transferable. Well, why don't you, why don't you retire early from, from the university and come and be head of the division? And I said, if I can't do it from the outside, I'm not going to come in and get killed by, by the system. And um, and it's worked in so many different places. I mean, Argentina within within two years, we had a 400% increase in adolescents and young adults being brought for treatment with Link Community Resilience and, and the ARISE model where we train members of the community as links to mobilize families to recognize problems in their family. So, you know, I just, so I went back to publishing it instead and working where, where we're invited but, um, you know, every so often there'll be a community that asks us in. Our most recent was Alaska, where the villages are falling into the water because of the permafrost smelting. Mm. And the rate of, of COVID and addiction is extreme and depression, extremely high. And um, we, we, didn't get, we didn't get the grant. You know, I, I had consulted to somebody in Alaska designing it. We didn't get the grant because the reviewers felt we were not training sufficient numbers of professionals. The fact that we would be training a huge number of peers and members of the community was irrelevant because that money has to be sent on, spent on training professionals, not on spreading the impact of professionals. So there's still a long way to go politically. Right. And in some ways, perhaps kind of circling back to the earlier point, it might be even more challenging now than it may have been in the 80s or so. Much more. There was Much more because people have stopped even thinking about the family. Hmm. The fact that, you know, so many people working with adolescents don't even include family. So I'm still doing it. I'm still doing keynotes and trying to help people understand why. Let me but know if this is a fair know, question, but what keeps your energy going for this work? Is Hope. Hmm. And and also just the knowledge that um, you know I've been given this way of thinking for a purpose. Hmm. You know I know why I'm here, and as long as I, as long as I can make a bit of difference, and I am trying to, you know I I for for quite a while I wasn't able to write because I was so busy, and. Um, I think the, you know, with the current trend of people taking evidence-based models and turning them into books that are accessible to the public, um, which is what I did, my AIDS, AIDS health and mental health. Um, what do you what, think of that trend? Are you, are you? Well, I'm like part it? of it. I mean, the AIDS okay. book, which was published in, you know, during the AIDS pandemic was our book on our, our, our evidence-based model of prevention. And it it won an, won an international award as a crossover book. So it was one of the first that actually crossed over to the public. And the Arise book is used by a lot of public. Hmm. So I'm currently working on my autobiography because everybody keeps saying they want it. But it gets put aside because um, the book I'm currently working on is um, called Family Bridges Across Time. And it's um, the story of families that I've worked with who've, um, who've used past life regression hypnosis. 
and integrating their past life experiences into why they're here and what they want to do and what they want to change. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I'm trying to find the words for describing this, so please forgive me or edit me, but there's something more, not spiritual. I guess there's like a, your work doesn't feel like housed in the materialism of the West in some ways, if that makes sense. Like it feels like there's something else going on. Yeah, there is. There is. You know, I firmly believe in being being here for a purpose and... Mm -hmm. As long as I can follow where I'm meant to be going, I'm doing the right thing. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Well, and if I'm hearing you correctly, as you've also participated in the evidence-based practice to self-help yeah. trend, mm-hmm. uh, have you? is there ways that the transitional family system, I'm trying to imagine that in a self-help context. Okay, that, so so let me tell you about... Two of the other protocols. Yes, please. Um, so, arise comprehensive care with invitational intervention. Um, when when I was running a, a running a um, a hospital in in Cape Town, um, the receptionist asked me when somebody called in, what should she say to them. And I said, you invite them to come with the person they're concerned about and the family to the first meeting. And everybody came. When I moved to the States, um, a colleague of mine in Albany asked me to um, asked me to consult to his clinic because he was having a lot of trouble. He wanted me to train them in how to integrate family therapy. And um, this was in... I think 1980, somewhere way back. And so I would go up once a month. And on the third month, he said, something funny is happening. Everybody who calls in is coming for treatment. I said, why is that? Why is that strange? Of course they would. And I then discovered that, and we did some studies with students calling around the world, over 90% of people calling into a mental health clinic or a hospital or an addiction clinic were told that they couldn't talk to the person until the person of concern had called them, right? So we set about changing that and developed Arise, which is um, a way of working with whoever calls in to have them bring the family and the person of concern to the first meeting. And we meet with them whether or not that first person of concern comes. and. Um, the um, I think there sixty percent of people are in treatment in a week, seventy two in two weeks, eighty three percent in three weeks, and ninety six percent in six months. Oh. which was very different from any of the other ways of getting people into treatment. And um, it's been studied around the world, and Fernandez and his team looked at, you know, why does it work? And it's because the family's involved, it's invitational. And it's a continuum of care that lasts at least six months. Mm. So people don't sign out, and less than 2% sign out against medical advice. So that's one of the models where the link is the person who calls in. And it doesn't matter what they're calling about. It could be lung cancer. It could be um, a dermatological issue. It could be addiction. It could be schizophrenia. 
Um, so it's again working through the link and then with the community, Link Community Resilience, it's working through multiple links into their families. You have the facilitating link who then works with more links directly into the families. So um, Argentina, the original study was done with Buenos Aires province. We worked across the country, but Buenos Aires province um, is 12 million people. And within two years, we had a 400% rate of engagement. Wow. And, um, or increase in engagement. And at the 15-year mark, 92% of the community programs that had been started were still working. And the mayor, who one of the mayors of a 2 million population city, claimed all credit. He'd only been the mayor for five years. But our philosophy with Link Community Resilience is we tread lightly and leave no footprints. The credit for change belongs to that community or that family. Yeah, I'm, I'm appreciating the ethic here of centering the person who's asking for help, staying connected to that person, and being really cautious of the professionalized imprint on community and rather centering the community. Right. In the and we process. don't label. You know, the first thing we do with all of the protocols is get the person of concern out of the middle and separate them from the label. It's someone with schizophrenia. It's not a schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. any more than we say that's the heart disease or there walks the fracture. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, humanity and social justice at every level. Right. Uh, Judith, I'm so grateful for this conversation. I'm with a lot of thoughts and inspiration about how this might even apply to some of my work here. Um, and can, in keeping an eye on time, I guess I'm wondering if I could ask you a kind of a final question here. Sure. Maybe too big of a question. So, you know, do with it what you want, but kind of acknowledging that you've had a unique and wide perspective on the field over time. Somewhat, um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we have practitioners coming into the field now, 21, 22, they're young. Yeah. What hopes you have for some of your work and its legacy or, or maybe, maybe even more broadly, just this incoming generation of, practitioners um you know i think one of the one one of the the most important parts is is hope you know that no matter how bad things look um is to trust that we're all inherently resilient and regardless of how horrible things look if we can find that first little thread of resilience and resources if we can build relationships, because our resilience sits in our connection to our family and culture of origin. Um, there's, um, I'm trying to think what the paper was called. Um, we did a study looking at the importance of, um, of storytelling. In fact, if you're familiar with Michael White's narrative therapy, it came from um, a workshop I did in Israel in 1977 at their first international conference where I turned the whole plenary audience into an African community and moved them from the tribe into the city and out again. And Michael was a young graduate student, wide-eyed, and got really excited about the importance of story and then developed his wonderful model. Um, so. 
we did a series of studies looking at the importance of connection to family and culture of origin. And so my message to young people is always be ready to listen to story, to go beyond what you see in the room until you really understand the context and the background of the people you're working with mm. and never give up on working with the family. Even if you're working with the individual, find a way of accessing at least one other family member because the whole story changes the minute you have a different lens. Thank you so much, Dr. Lando. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure being with you, Dr. Nadine.